Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be about how to increase success with IVF. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for infertility and adoption. You can find us at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring is now offering a savings card for their endometrium vaginal inserts. This instant savings card offers up to $50 savings each month on your endometrium prescription for eligible patients. You can ask your doctor for more details. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest things that are happening in the world of infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog topic and show topic. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to our website and look on the left-hand side and just give us your email address. We share it with no one for any reason. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week. A recent blog that has been both quite popular and quite controversial uh, was titled, Will You Tell Your Family and Friends You Use Egg or Sperm Donation? Uh, it, uh, I encourage you to join the discussion at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Um, I will say that the discussion has been pretty robust on this one. I'm not sure I agree with everything, but that's okay. It's been interesting uh, and respectful, and it's really been kind of fascinating to hear all the different views that are that are out there. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We'd also like to thank Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient leader in the field of infertility. With seven offices in New Jersey, RMA New Jersey maintains an IVF delivery rate well above the national average, and they offer the latest and validated technical solutions to help hopeful patients increase their chance for success in the shortest time possible. And we do thank them for their support. On today's Creating a Family show, we're going to be talking about increasing success with IVF. Our guest, Dr. Marcy McGuire, is a reproductive endocrinologist at Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey and clinical assistant professor of reproductive endocrinology at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And we're going to be talking today about the latest groundbreaking discoveries that are increasing the odds of success in IVF. Welcome, Dr. McGuire, to Creating a Family. Thanks, Don. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so in order to achieve a pregnancy with IVF, we need good embryos to transfer. I guess that seems pretty obvious. 
And it seems, actually, and, and I, at the, it really seemed to me this way, it struck me over and over again, I should say this way, at the uh, American Society of Reproductive Medicine Conference that we just got back from a couple of weeks ago. It seemed like we're entering a new world and looking at what makes a good embryo. In, in the past, we talked about it being uh, embryo selection uh, was more art than science. Uh, and it just seems to me from listening to the researchers and, and reading some of the papers and, and seeing some of the poster presentations that, new, that the new research that's coming out seems to be tw- changing that equation more towards the science end. So I think it would help if we first talk about, uh, kind of at the very beginning, what makes a good embryo. And by good, let me be really clear here, I mean one that will implant and grow for nine months to become a baby. Absolutely. Uh, there are actually multiple factors that um, lead to uh, a good embryo, a strong embryo that would ultimately uh, lead to delivery of a live birth, a healthy child. The most important factor is the genetics of the embryo. Um, aneuploidy or an abnormal number of chromosomes is the leading reason that couples have either a failed uh, pregnancy, meaning a negative pregnancy test or a miscarriage. Um, so that's far and above the most important factor in defining a good embryo. But there are other non-genomic factors as well, um, including energy sources within the embryo and other factors leading to its ability to divide and, and grow. So Okay, so um, we kind of have the genomic type factors, the genes, and then or, or the, the chromosomal issues, and then we have others, uh, other issues. Okay, so we'll kind of talk around around all of those. All right, let's start with the the most common one, and that is, as you mentioned, um, uh, where there's a chromosomal abnormality. What causes genes to have, not genes, listen to me, embryos, um, to have an abnormal, is it usually a number issue, an abnormal number of, of chromosomes? Is that the usual uh, chromosomal or genomic type problem? Correct. So uh, all cells have, you know, 22 autosomal chromosomes plus a pair of sex chromosomes. And during the process of reproduction, uh, new cells are generated, which should have an appropriate number of 22 autosomes plus an X and an X for a female or an X and a Y for a male. And during this process where embryos are created, then there can be errors so that there aren't exactly 22 autosomes in it and an X and a Y or an X and an X, that there is an extra chromosome 21, for instance, which would lead to Down syndrome or perhaps a missing part of chromosome 5, other errors that make the cell or the embryo somewhat imperfect genetically. Um, and then this embryo then becomes unable to make to a live birth um, and sometimes unable to even lead to a pregnancy. Are chromosomal errors more common in IVF than they are in in the typical way people get pregnant? They're not more common in IVF. Uh, However, there is an age correlation with the risk of aneuploidy in embryos so that as women get older, the chance of having an aneuploid embryo or an embryo that is not genetically normal increases. And this risk um, grows exponentially after age 35, so that uh, women, when a woman, woman nears the age of 40, then a significant portion of her embryos would be likely to be genetically abnormal. So they may appear normal just uh, on the surface, but, um, but actually within the genetics of that embryo are not sound, and that embryo would not have the potential to lead to a delivery. 
You mentioned women's age. What about men's age? What if the woman is below 35? And I realize there's no magic cutoff, but let's say, for for sake of argument, let's choose 35. Um, If women, uh, the woman was below 35, but the man was, you know, in his 40s or 50s or 60s. So paternal age is less critical, but does have some influence. So Increasing paternal age does not appear to be as closely linked with chromosomal problems, but can be linked with other possible genetic issues, for instance, autosomal dominant disorders, um, possibly, and some have also suggested a possible link with autism. But yeah, the, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. but there, it's definitely closely tied to the risk of aneuploidy or abnormal chromosomes is definitely closely tied to maternal age. Yeah, it's just one of those... Unfair things. Totally <laughs> but it unfair. is. Yeah. It is what it is. All right, right. So it's not more common in IVF, but uh, but we would then know about it. Now the chromosomal errors that we've talked about um, would they affect the embryo from implanting? Because I guess there's a number of things that have to happen. First, the embryo has to implant into the uterine lining. Then the embryo has to grow and sustain itself. Uh, and make it through the full nine months. So where do the chromosomal issues uh, raise their, their become the biggest problem for the implantation or the growing or the what? Absolutely. So that can chromosomal errors can manifest throughout. Aneuploid embryos or chromosomally abnormal embryos may simply arrest in the culture dish in the IVF laboratory. They may not even make it to the stage where they would be transferred into an endometrium. On the other hand, um, they may be transferred and then never lead to never lead to a pregnant a positive pregnancy test. They may never actually implant. Um, then they will implant and then develop until somewhere between six and eight weeks gestation, and um, and that's probably the most unfortunate case because couples get their hopes up and mm-hmm. they you know are certainly pregnant and then the, there's a fetus there but the heart rate disappears or something like that, and they end up having a miscarriage. And chromosomal abnormalities are certainly commonly found among um, the products of conception passed at the time of miscarriage. Yeah. All right. So then before we, we move off to the move off of talking about the different factors that make a good embryo, you mentioned the energy source within the embryo. Um, that obviously I suppose, I guess it's obvious that uh, uh, embryos need an energy source to to further their division and implantation and growth and all that. So what do we know about the energy uh, uh, source and and how does that impact? Right, exactly. um, So there is actually much less known about the non-genomic sources of um, failed embryo implant, implantation or failed embryo development, uh, meaning that if a euploid or a genetically normal embryo is transferred, why would it, A, not implant at all, or B, develop but ultimately lead to a loss? And um, reasons, support, reasons to explain this phenomenon are more uh, theory than um, fact at this point, but at least in theory there could be issues re- related to the embryo's energy to continue to divide and grow, which is a highly energy-consuming activity. Um, And then also there are 
receptors on the embryo surface and also on the surface of the endometrium, which come into play um, and have an effect on whether that pregnancy would implant and grow. Uh, so there are multiple non-genomic factors that are related to the success of a, um, you know, a successful pregnancy outcome following IVF, but it's much harder to define these. Well, and another one you mentioned was that I was I wanted to follow up on was the division and division. I, I didn't say division rate, but that's what I was thinking. I know that um, there has been some interesting research done a, a number of years ago on um, videotaping or watching in some way uh, embryos and seeing what their rate of division is, and that that was felt to be indicative or an indication that that these embryos would go or were thriving in, in the dish, in the petri dish, and um, so then therefore would be expected to thrive inside the uterus. Um, is that research continuing, or has that become standard, or has that been um, uh, disqualified, found to be not valid? Absolutely. So that research is continuing, um, although not accepted as standard of care at this point. Um, RMA actually recently did a, a collaborative study using a um, time-lapse photography method of watching or observing embryo development and culture. Uh, and the goal of that study was to look at uh, whether this pattern of development correlated with embryo aneuploidy or not. And the results of that study are still um, pending, um, but it is an idea that has been discussed uh, to, to a great extent. Um, there is a theory called the quiet embryo theory that perhaps the embryos which need slightly less energy um, could potentially have a uh, better chance at success. But again, that's a theory um, that is being investigated. Yeah, I mean, we want all the answers right now. Or maybe I'm speaking for myself. Right. It's like I, I hear of something and I think, okay, well, that yeah, okay, what's the answer? Yeah. Unfortunately, research doesn't work with the snap of a finger, um, which is, right. you know, really unfortunate <laughs> right. for all of us. Um, all right, so going back to some of the exciting developments that are happening and it seems to be happening all right now, which I realize is not true. These have been ongoing, and they're continuing, and every year it's probably the case. But it just seems that this was the year of the embryo for me. Uh, and uh, so what are some of the research that's, that we are seeing now that's coming into fruition and actually being utilized in IVF uh, practices, I mean infertility practices, um, that are helping uh, doctors and embryologists pick the best embryos to transfer. Absolutely. So um, just like you said, in, in prior years, we were forced to select embryos for transfer based purely on aesthetics, how they looked from the outside. And unfortunately, uh, the aesthetics of an embryo do not always predict, predict its potential to lead to a baby. So that sometimes uh, relatively good-looking embryos may not lead to a pregnancy, whereas somewhat um, forgive me for saying this, but somewhat ugly embryos lead to a perfectly normal, healthy child. Mm -hmm. uh, so now our technology had, has advanced to the point where we can biopsy the placental cells of an embryo and do genetic testing on the embryo prior to transfer, and that will help us uh, to help us to gain better pregnancy rates because we are able to know the genetic identity of the embryos before even transferring them into a woman's uterus. So in the past, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, in the past, process is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. People may have heard uh, it referred to as PGD, so I just wanted to throw that out there. So go ahead. I interrupted. Absolutely. So PGD testing historically was actually done on day eight, uh, which is a cleavage cleavage stage embryo, at which point there are only eight cells. Um, and the biopsy for for that type of testing required taking one or two cells out of an eight-cell embryo um, and, then, and thereby potentially doing some damage to the embryo's ability to implant itself. But now we're able to grow the embryos to the blastocyst stage where they are approximately 200 cells and have a distinct inner cell mass or a portion that will lead to the baby ultimately, which is separate from the trophectoderm cells around the edge, which will ultimately lead to the placenta. So by growing the embryos to blastocyst stage, we can identify which cells are placenta and take a few cells from the placenta portion of a now 200-cell embryo, therefore not doing damage to the embryo through the biopsy itself, and then use these um, increasingly rapid technologies to look through, so to speak, the chromosomes of each embryo to determine which ones have a normal genetic content versus um, ones that have extra or missing chromosomal material. And historically, it used to be done on what day? What day was eight cell? So that's day three typically, and 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 that is still done by some, by some clinics. Um, however, uh, the blastocyst bi- stage biopsy likely offers an advantage in terms of allowing the embryo better implantation capacity. And, and, and generally speaking, the blastocyst stage is around day five or day six? Day five probably, huh? Uh, correct, day five to six. Okay. All right, just so we kind of know uh, what type of – and what's fascinating to me is that because it, one of the concerns, and some of the research – it was was fairly optimistic, but one of the concerns is if you've got eight cells to choose from and you're taking one or two, let's say two, that, that what happens to the resulting embryo? Uh, you know, can uh, they are dividing, but is it possible that, that these it, it later, either it would hurt the embryo and it wouldn't become a child or that if a child was created from this embryo, it would hurt the child? Um, and that didn't necessarily, I mean, there's, I don't know that we know for certain that that's, the case, but it certainly uh, is there any evidence? Maybe I should ask that. Is there any evidence that says that it is safer for the embryo and/or ultimately the child to remove a couple of from two hundred from a couple rather than removing a couple from eight? Correct. Yes, and definitely an important point. So, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not aware of an adverse effect on the the children born from the biopsy. So if the embryo is to survive the biopsy and ultimately lead to a live birth, I'm not aware of any damage or harm that's done to the resulting children. However, uh, a study done at RMA has shown that a cleavage stage biopsy will result result in lower implantation rates for the embryo than um, blastocyst or trophectoderm biopsy, which is the type of biopsy done on day five to six. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well, it it seems like we have a a problem here though because most embryos are transferred. If you're if you're waiting, if you're transferring at the blastocyst stage, you're transferring at day five. But if you're also doing taking the biopsy uh, of the placenta cells at day five, that means you're not able to transfer. 
uh, at day five. Uh, so how do we work around that timing issue? Absolutely. So actually, uh, with newer technology, microarray and now RMA uses qPCR testing, we're able to obtain the biopsy and then within a four-hour window get the genetic information. So we actually can have the capacity to do a biopsy and then transfer it all within a fresh cycle. Interesting. So four hours, wow. Yeah. That's quick. Um, all right, we do have a question here from Sue Ellen. It may, not be, it may be a, a bit of a moot question at this point. She says, do you have to freeze embryos to do this and then do the transfer at another appointment? I worry about how freezing might affect the embryo and later baby and would like to avoid it. She's asked a couple of questions here, one for the impact of freezing on embryos. But uh, I guess let's start with the question of is it, you've pretty much answered it, you do not have to freeze an embryo in order to do PGD, even if you wait until day five or day six to uh, biopsy and get the uh, and get the cells and do the testing, is that correct? That's correct. And we usually um, do our fresh transfers on the morning of day six, um, so the biopsy would be done uh, either on the day five or day six, and a transfer early in the morning of day six. And there is some research, though, that would indicate that. Um, it's not only not harmful to not transfer fresh, but that you might have increased pregnancy rates if you uh, freeze the embryos and transfer and not when the woman has just been uh, had the uh, egg retrieval just prior days in, in that same month. Um, so how do you analyze whether to do a fresh transfer or, or freeze? That kind of goes to Sue Ellen's question, which is, preferring to do fresh, and that's fine to prefer it. I just wonder if there's, if that's supported by uh, science. Right, absolutely. And another um, very hot topic, uh, actually, um, at ASRM uh, this year. Uh, so there are two issues to consider at that point. Um, one is the window of implantation. So from the moment a woman's uterus uh, is first introduced to progesterone, there is a limited time frame during which an embryo can be transferred, and that's called the window of implantation. So for a normally developing embryo, uh, that can be transferred on the morning of day six or, or, or on day five if you're doing a blastocyst transfer um, and still remain within the window of implantation. If, however, the embryo is doing okay but kind of growing slow so that um, it's just passing from the morulus stage into the blastocyst stage when it really should be a fully expanded blastocyst by this, then it is now out of sync with the lining of the uterus because on the morning of day six, uh, the uterus is really ready for an expanded blastocyst. That's what it's prepared for, and it doesn't necessarily want to accept a a slowly developing or or an at that point underdeveloped embryo. So in that kind of situation, it makes sense to you know give the embryos a little more time so that they can get to that blastocyst stage where they need to be to optimize their chance for implantation. That be, if that is done, though, you will have bypassed that window of implantation. That the uterus will have sort of passed you by, so to speak. So we couldn't effectively transfer that slower-growing embryo because we would have missed our opportunity. But that's okay because you can just freeze the embryo at that point and transfer the following month when everything is lined up. 
That makes it. I like that that gap of imp- get, getting out of sync with the uh, the embryo, out of sync with the uh, with the uterus. That's a great analogy. Um, and is there some also evidence to support that the the use of the gonadotropins themselves, or the, the the medications that are taken to uh, stimulate a woman's ovary to produce more uh, eggs than would normally happen, can also affect the woman's uterine lining and perhaps make it less supportive. Therefore, if you wait a month, um, the uterine lining might be more uh, nurturing, ripe, whatever the correct word is. is does, that, does that hold any water when we look at it uh, scientifically? Absolutely. There is um, definitely data to suggest that a hyperstimulated uterus or a hyperstimulated estrogen milieu is not the optimal environment to for embryo transfer. Um, and Scientists have looked at women who've had exceedingly high estradiol levels or estrogen levels during fresh IVF cycles and either, A, had their embryos transferred anyway despite that high estrogen level versus, B, had an embryo transferred the following months during a frozen cycle when their estrogen levels were more physiologic, more within the normal range. And mm-hmm. there is some evidence to suggest that at least obstetric outcomes are worse if the embryo is transferred into a hyper-stimulated, high estrogen environment. Um, those obstetric complications might include preeclampsia um, and other issues like that. I was just going to ask what obstetric outcome, what you meant by that, but preeclampsia is the primary one? Right, exactly, yeah. Okay, excellent. All right, so... Uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, QPCR, is that the, uh, did I get that right? That's the testing that uh, you utilize? Correct, yes. The PGD. All right, so we have the general kind of category of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis testing. Under that, what options do people have? Um, PGT is, we've thought about it in the past, as a you know you do pgd you don't you don't then have the the thought of when you're selecting a, a lab of what type of pgd so are there different right. types but it sounds like now there are different types of pgd and if so what are they absolutely so um fish was probably the first technology used for some pgd screening for aneuploidian embryos However, unfortunately, FISH is probably not the best technology to use. Um, It doesn't screen every chromosome. It screens a limited number of chromosomes, and it's um, unfortunately subject to a lot of error so that you may be transferring abnormal embryos or not transferring good embryos mistakenly. So FISH is not probably ideal to use. Um, Microarray testing is another sort of DNA-based testing method that is reliable um, and accurate um, uh, and certainly something worth using. Um, and then qPCR testing is even more thorough um, and it involves amplifying multiple regions of DNA within the chromosomes, the 22 autosomes plus the sex chromosomes um, to look for extra or missing portions of those chromosomes. Um, and at least at RNA, the qPCR technology here is uh, 98% accurate, and it's pretty quick too. It just has that four-hour window. And microarray testing takes how long? Um, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. I, uh, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> is it a couple of days though? 
or is it um, like a stay? Or? Okay. Yeah. My, as I understood it, it was it was uh, when microarray array testing was the uh, was the uh, standard of care that most people were using. Um, the issue was it was requiring um, uh, people to freeze embryos freeze. Um, mm-hmm. because you couldn't get the test results back in time to do a day five or morning of day six transfer. Or that was how I had understood that to be, um, but uh, as as we're saying now, there there are actually some advantages, perhaps, of not doing the transfer on the same month you do the stimulation. So, uh, correct. But, yeah. But there are, I guess, there are, are there some advantages to doing a fresh transfer over a uh, frozen transfer. There are, I think, mainly related to um, patient and couple comfort and kind of. Um, Speed to or, or to transfer. A lot of couples that come in obviously um, are anxious to become pregnant um, sooner rather than later, and a lot of people um, would prefer to have a fresh transfer for that reason. Um, the other issue is that for a frozen embryo transfer cycle, a lot of times you will need to take intramuscular progesterone, whereas during a fresh cycle. Uh, vaginal progesterone suppositories will suffice. And the intramuscular progesterone, which is essentially a a shot, um, is more painful um, than the vaginal suppository. So for that reason, also people sometimes prefer fresh over frozen. Okay. Um, One of the things uh, worth talking about anytime we talk about uh, infertility treatment is the issue of cost uh, as... Mm -hmm. Uh, we all know, or maybe long-time listeners of this show will know, many patients are paying for infertility treatment out of pocket because their insurance does not cover it or because they've used up the number of cycles that their insurance does cover. Um, right. So the more we add to the process, the more we raise the cost of the process. So it's worth talking about now um, if utilizing PGD, will mm-hmm. increase the odds of, of well, let's back up. Utilizing PGD will allow us to choose the best embryo, uh, one would hope, uh, therefore increase the odds of success for a, a pregnancy. Um, right. But what does it do to the cost? So it is, uh, it is an additional cost for a cycle to have uh, chromosomal screening, However, this can be an additional cost up front, which potentially saves costs down the road because it definitely lowers your chance of miscarriage, and it would also, at least theoretically, lower the number of transfers you would ultimately have to undergo in order to obtain a pregnancy. So if the live birth rate in women under 35 at our group without chromosome screening is 65%, but the rate of live birth in all comers with PGD screening is 85%, you can see that you would have to go through less cycles to obtain a child through if you're using PGD-screened blastocyst rather than simply um, the one that's judged the best-looking blastocyst for transfer. Okay. So what does it do for the – and you may have just answered this. You were talking about live birth rate, so that probably incorporates the – uh, I do want to talk. I wanted to talk about uh, statistics. So, um, you're saying that the live birth rate, which would take which would take into account the miscarriage rate, uh, 
for right. under 35-year-olds, the research that you're seeing right now would say that it would increase it from 65% to 85%. Did I, did I uh, get that right? Right. So the um, live birth rate in women under 35 at RMA is 65%. Now the um, national average live birth rate for women under 35 is actually closer to 40%. But in um, women who undergo chromosomal screening, at least at our clinic, across the board, across all age groups, the live birth rate is 85%. So whether you're looking at that 65% versus 85% or, or even more profoundly at the 40% national average versus an 85% live birth rate, then your efficiency, your chance of having a baby per effort, per try, is higher with the chromosomally screened embryos. In some of the research that was presented at ASRM this year, what were some of the other statistics in, in, in other clinics? What were they finding? Was it this dramatic as well um, that uh, with PGD and chromosomal screening, were they finding as uh, universally was 85 pretty much what we were hearing? So I can't quote the um I can't quote the PGD screening pregnancy rates for other clinics, but it, is, it does improve pregnancy rates um, across the board in other clinics as well to do the chromosomal screening. Okay. And one of the things that we've, we know is that fertility treatment in general is just less effective with older women, regardless of, of, of what we do. Uh, so for an older woman, uh, and by older, I, let's, uh, over 35, and if you want to break it down to over 35 and then over 40, that would be fine. Uh, so for older women who are making fewer uh, chromosomally normal embryos, um, do we see the same increase, uh, uh, the same pregnancy rates using their own eggs, given that their eggs, they may not produce that many um, what are the odds of finding in a given cycle a, 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 a chromosomally normal embryo? Absolutely. So um, that's a very uh, important question also, I think. Um, so actually, to first answer the question of whether um, women have a good ch- older women or women over age 35 or over age 40 have a chance of a live birth using a chromosomally screened embryo, absolutely. In fact, having a chromosomally normal embryo largely negates the negative impact of the of patient age on the chance of pregnancy. So a woman that ha- that is 40 that has a chromosomally normal blastocyst is in a very good place and might even be in close to the same place as a 30-year-old woman that has um, an embryo for transfer. So still, if the if there is a chromosomally normal embryo, the pregnancy rate in older women is also, or the live birth rate in older women also approaches 85% um, per transfer. Now, but the question you, of... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you also said or mentioned that, you know, women who are older might not have quite as many embryos available per cycle, and that's true. Um, and actually, there can be quite a bit of variable variability in the amount of embryos collected um, in women after age 35. Um, while some might have three embryos after one cycle, some women might be struggling to have one embryo after a single cycle of IVF. And that certainly will influence the chance of pregnancy, um, because the more you have, the better your chances of having a euploid or a genetically normal embryo. 
So well, and, um, yeah, exactly, because they produce uh, older women do not stimulate as well, so they produce fewer eggs to begin with, and then of the eggs they produce, fewer of them grow to the blastocyst stage. So I, I guess I'm trying to get a feel for if you were a uh, a typical 40 year old coming in, what would be your chances not of if you found a a normal chromosome because you said that's uh, at least at your clinic 85 percent and and high at other clinics as well if you have a, a chromosomally normal embryo, but what are your chances in in general of having a chromosomally normal embryo if and pick an age. I, I'll let's pick 40 for the sake of argument. Uh, absolutely. So I'm actually looking at it right here. So at age 40, um, the rate of aneuploidy is about uh, 55%. So the chance, the number of embryos, so if you had four embryos, roughly half of them would be abnormal genetically and half would be normal. Okay. So uh, your risk if you... If the, obviously, the more eggs you produce and the more embryos that grow, the better your odds. You know that would be uh, that's a duh statement, but the uh, uh, the uh, but your rate's about you know 40 to 55 percent. So just say roughly half. Uh, so you know, kind of going in, if you've got four, you know, you're playing. If you're playing the half odds, yeah, you would have half of them. All right, right. there. Um, although this is a a, a little. Um, not directly on topic, it is something that comes up and is sometimes not mentioned but always thought by the general public or often wondered about the general public. In fact, I just heard, I believe, it was a Diane Ream show on NPR uh, recently. I, I'm a podcast addict. I love podcasts. And I, <laughs> I, I listen to them when I run, and I was – actually, it was just yesterday. I was uh, running and just was playing whatever was coming up, and it happened to be cool. a Diane Ream show, and she was talking about um, – the uh, use of PGD to, and I think it was Diane Room. Now that I'm saying it, I'm pretty sure that was her. It was her show. Uh, the use of uh, PGD to create the, and the term that's always used by the media is designer babies. Um, you've right. been discussing uh, PGD to find chromosomally normal uh, embryos. Uh, so uh, the the PGD is is, is significantly looking at. Uh, just to make certain that the, the that the numbers of chromosomes are are correct, and that, that so choosing those. How much further can you, how much further can you drill deeper, uh, so to speak, in the in, in PGD to choose, uh, to to choose gender, to choose hair color, to choose eye color, to choose uh, 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 things that would those those would be considered more cosmetic, but to choose things like uh, susceptibility to certain diseases. Uh, and uh, things that parents might might well have an interest in, in knowing about. Absolutely, and um, that's actually a very important distinction. Um, and a, a lot of people um, will confuse PGD with um, with more specific looking for more specific genetic uh, traits. So actually. Um, to state it correctly, PGD or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is actually used to diagnose embryos that carry a very specific mutation or, or genetic trait. For instance, an embryo that might be affected by cystic fibrosis or spinomuscular atrophy, some very um, deadly diseases that you don't or parents might not necessarily want to pass on to the next generation. So PGD in particular is is truly 
used for that. On the flip side, PGS, or pre-implantation genetic screening, is really what we've been talking about for the last um, 30 minutes where we're doing a broad look at the chromosomes to see um, if there are large pieces of missing or extra genetic information um, which would really be used more to predict chance of a live birth or chance of miscarriage versus um, very specific genetic traits. Okay, but, and I hear you, and that's a great distinction, and I'm actually glad you mentioned it. Okay, so we have kind of general screening that we've been talking about for looking at, taking a big picture look and saying, um, it, does this, uh, embryo have the right number of chromosomes in order to give it the best chance of implantation. But the same technique, or a more specific technique, PGD, and that was the, the first one was pre-implantation genetic screening. Um, and the, but the second one, uh, pre-implantation pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, can also uh, be used. In hat in hand, when you're doing PGS. So, how often do you look further for either uh, the specific diseases, um, and, and what diseases can be, um, and, and then even down to things: is it possible to look for cosmetic things? Right. Absolutely. So, um, PGD and PGS are similar in so far as they involve biopsying the embryo. So, but actually, after that sample, those couple cells from the placenta is obtained, um, following that, the two techniques completely differ. So for the PGS, which we have been talking about to, uh, up to this time, it involves qPCR testing a broad look at all of the chromosomes. For PGD testing, which actually can't be done in a short amount of time, it could never be done for a fresh embryo transfer, it is a much more involved process. It involves um, generating specific DNA probes surrounding a certain particular gene within the genome or, or within one chromosome um, to identify if that particular gene, for instance, the gene for cystic fibrosis, is mutated. So um, they're not uh, something, they can be combined, but they're actually quite different um, in terms of their goal. So some couples may say, may have a child with cystic fibrosis and they're looking to, to sort of screen against this in their, in their second child. And in that case, they would do PGD testing. They would be looking specifically at that embryo cystic fibrosis gene, and they could elect to do that in combination with broad genomic screening or PGS, or they may elect not to do the genetic screening at all, to do the testing for the cystic fibrosis, the PGD for the cystic fibrosis alone, but not look at the rest of the genome for other broad uh, errors in the genetic code. Gotcha. And the, um, and the PG, in specific PGD, looking for specific diseases, is not routinely done, and is and and is uh, there there may not even be research that would indicate that from a um, a implantation that the um, the upping the odds of implantation and growth, uh, we certainly may or may not be um, a particularly it's not the it's, it's not the reason that it is utilized. Right, and it would be um, people or couples do do not routinely test for specific genetic disorders unless they are known to be carriers for that disorder. It wouldn't be um, reasonable at this stage to, to test for every single um, genetic uh, mutation that could exist because there are, you know, there are endless possibilities for 
specific genetic or gene changes that could occur. So, and PGS has been a while, and, we, and in the past we've been referring to it as PGD, but, but we really should be more specific because you're right, there really are two different uh, things. PGS has been around for, for a while. Uh, so why is, it, uh, why is it making the buzz now for uh, what has changed to make it more uh, accurate or, or to make the reproductive endocrinologists that I've spoken with more excited about the future as far as predicting, uh, increasing the odds of success? What's changed? Absolutely. So it's... Um a lot to do with the type of science, as you said, I think, at the, at the onset of the hour, the type of science which is kind of caught up with um, embryology and embryo selection. So in the past, the fish type of diagnostics testing was not accurate or reliable um, and would often lead to false positives or negatives. Um, so um, patients and physicians weren't as comfortable in using that. But now that we have microarray and, and also qPCR testing, um, this type of screening is much more accurate and reliable um, and uh, offers a, a definite impact on the chance of live birth. Which is really, I mean, it's kind of in some ways picking the, um, a long time ago, um, a um, embryologist on the show talked about the holy grail. He said the holy grail would be uh, being able to look at an embryo or test an embryo to know which ones will implant. But it, interestingly, this was probably in 2008, I guess, when he was uh, on the show. And he said, but, you know, we are a long way away from that. Um, and I suppose it depends on how we define long, but, you know, it's uh, it it doesn't feel that long anymore. Right, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of it is that the speed at which computers and technology is able to process information is so much faster now. That's what's facilitated the advent of uh, of qPCR and microarray. It's the ability of these computer systems and technology to process such a vast amount of information and, and give a reliable output, whereas fish um, with more actually not sort of computer or technology-based so much as um, use of a, of a staining material and then just looking visually at chromosomes plated out on a slide. All right, we have a question from Bethany that seems relevant here, and she is concerned about the impact on an embryo for uh, when you take a biopsy from the embryo. Uh, her question's long, but I'm, so I'm just going to, I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty valid summary. So what Absolutely. does the research so, show on that? So, um, you know, doing a biopsy is not completely risk-free, but the chance of damaging the embryo is essentially roughly 1% when it's done at the trophectoderms or at the blastocyst stage when you're taking placenta cells only. So, um, but there is a risk of, a, of approximately 1% that the embryo would not be able to survive the biopsy. Um, but that that risk is outweighed by the chance, by the advantage you gain in knowing the genetic information and being able to ter determine which embryos to transfer. Mm -hmm. And and I would add, for, to, and I think we said this at the at the beginning of the show, I would add that this is not always, that part of her concern is based on some of the information that's a number of years old when the biopsies were done on a day three, and that's what you were speaking about at the beginning, that that's taking 
one to two or say two out of eight cells versus two out of 200. And I think that uh, it may have been where I think there are some, um, not misunderstanding, just where the information is, is only now percolating down, uh, the research information, so people aren't really even aware that it's done at a different stage. Absolutely, and I, one thing to add on top of that is that at the at the eight cell stage, all of those cells could could have the potential to become anything. They could be placenta, they could be baby, but at the at the blastocyst stage, we can clearly take from the placenta and not from the inner cell mass or the baby portion of the embryo. It it, it what you're describing is is a fairly sophisticated uh, process, and. Um, and this is not meant to be an advertisement at all for any particular uh, lab. So I want this to be more general, regardless of where people live. What should people look for when choosing a infertility clinic? And one of the things we encourage people to consider when they're choosing a clinic is to look at the lab. Because much of this biop, not much, the biopsying is being done by embryologists uh, in the lab. Um, so what should people look for when choosing? How do they tell? What questions should they ask of of their clinics to know whether their labs are up to speed with the ability to do the chromosomal screening and doing it at um, at the blastocyst stage? Absolutely, and I and I agree with you 100 percent that the lab. The lab makes the practice. The better the embryologists are, the better the success of the program is. Um, so one sort of strong indication of a of a good lab is the ability of that lab to culture most embryos to the blastocyst stage, which is day five. Um, so I think that at minimum, whether or not they do offer blastocyst um, culture and blastocyst transfer is, is important. Um, also to ask for the type of biopsy they do. Do they do trophectoderm biopsy or do they do um, you know, cleavage stage biopsy, which is, this, which is the eight-cell stage, um, or, or other type, types of biopsies, polar body biopsies, which may not be quite as reliable um, in terms of a screening test. Um, and then overall, in general, um, the pregnancy and live birth rates uh, perhaps is reported through the SART website, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology website um, would be a good reference point to to find a, a strong um, IVF clinic and IVF laboratory. And we uh, link to all of um, that, well, both the SART and the CDC. This, the information is the same. It's just that SART is uh, one year sooner, one year more recent. Um, we link to all those off of our How to Find an Infertility Clinic page. Uh, and we also have done a number of uh, radio shows uh, which focus on how to understand uh, those statistics uh, and interpret those statistics. So, and all of those, those those shows are also listed on our How to Choose an Infertility Clinic. So, uh, one do some do some labs send out. The, the although they do the biopsying, they send out the, the 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 tissue, the cells to be analyzed elsewhere. Uh, is does that happen some, or does every or do most clinics, uh, most labs do the te the actual uh, screening uh, in house? 
Uh, it does happen a fair amount, and, and that's okay to do. Um, essentially, what happens is the embryo is cultured and grown in the laboratory. The biopsy is obtained, and then the embryo is frozen. And then that biopsy tissue can be um, either kept in-house to analyze or sent to another facility to analyze. Um, and that's, that is very much an okay uh, practice. Um, mm -hmm. So it would depend in part on, on what that IVF clinic uses uh, for their PGD screening. Right. Would that be a question? I, I, from the average patient, they're not going to know whether it, it probably isn't, it isn't an issue of importance, I suppose, because from an average patient standpoint, there's not a significant advantage between other than a timing and the ability to do a fresh transfer um, to right. using a for your, the lab to do it in house versus sending it out. So that's probably not something that that we should add to our list of things to uh, to ask about because uh, good screening can be done either way. Although it would require. Right. I would imagine it would require. I guess if it happened in the, if the screening facility was located in the same geographic area, it's possible it could be done in the same day and the still do an early. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I suppose it could Potent be actually. Potentially, but I most I would imagine most of the time it would require freezing. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I would, yeah, I would think it would as well. Uh, it's possible, I suppose, that you could do it. You know, quick enough that you could get it back. But I mean, then you're really talking about a bit of a a, uh, a timing issue at that point. And as we said, there's not there's not a huge advantage. In fact, there could even be a disadvantage uh, to right. transferring fresh. So it's something to think about. Let me take a quick okay. moment here to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources at Creating a Family. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm bank. Uh, Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services and the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina. They have the uh, they are known for their Snowflakes program, which is an embryo uh, donation program, and uh, they have had uh, over 260 babies born. In fact, I think it's over 300 now babies born through their embryo donation program. So, I think our final question is going to be. Um, do you foresee, or maybe it already has become um, the standard of practice, do you foresee uh, genetic screening becoming part of the standard of practice in IVF? Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it is it is really in, uh, key to, to um, optimizing outcomes for couples. And um, more than that, uh, it also can make, couples feel more comfortable in transferring fewer embryos, which would uh, ultimately lead to a lower twin rate um, or multiple gestation rate and therefore lead to safer pregnancies. So that if you transfer one chromosomally screened normal embryo, then you can have a pregnancy rate which is approximately equivalent to transferring two unscreened embryos. And a significantly lower multiple birth rate, not not zero, but because we can always have natural twinning. But I am so glad you raised that. I can't believe that I have not did not uh, uh, touch on that in in, in the show already. We are uh, huge proponents here at Creating a Family of encouraging 
um, uh, single embryo transfer. And with the notion, of, our mission is to try to say that uh, uh, IVF success in infertility treatment is one one healthy baby. Um, right. And uh, so, yeah, I am so glad you mentioned that because truthfully, uh, the more we are able to assure people, because people, the reason they want twins, well, it's multiple reasons people want twins. Partly they've tried long enough and they're tired of not, and they, the idea of having an instant family is appealing. But there also Absolutely. is a concern that they want to increase their odds uh, of having any baby. Uh, so I think those two things, uh, we can't handle that. This doesn't address the fear of, of or the desire to have the instant family, but it does uh, address the issue of, of uh, increasing your odds that so they become uh, along the same line as transferring to. And, uh, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Just one quick point to add to that is that if you have a if you have a series of embryos obtained through IVF and you know two of them are chromosomally normal, it is equally effective to just transfer one at a time so that you could have the instant family because you'd know that you're transferring one now, but you have one that's cryopreserved and waiting for um, a subsequent um, pregnancy when you're at which time you're ready. Yes, I. It's called having your twins two years apart, that type of thing. Yeah, I've that's heard right. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which always makes you scratch your head on that one. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Marcy McGuire, for being our guest today on creating a family. I want to just do a shout out now if, uh, for our listeners. If you have enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. You can go to our radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and click on the iTunes button, and it will take you to the page where you can rate the show. Just click on the number of stars you want to give it, and uh, we'd also very much appreciate any written comments you could leave. It helps others find our show, and uh, that helps others, and so we appreciate that. If you want to participate in a discussion uh, of the topic of this show, uh, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information on Dr. McGuire or on RMA New Jersey, you can go to their website, which is rmanj.com. Thanks for joining me this week, and I look forward to talking with you and hear you, hear you hearing our show next week. Thanks. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.